0: Welcome to the Real Storytellers Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki, and this is episode 105. Today, we have a very special guest. He goes by the name of Lester Young. Lester will share his story. We will talk about his organization called Path to Redemption. Now, this organization helps formerly incarcerated individuals get on their feet and much more. Lester has lived it and now on a positive path away from the life of crime he once knew. Let's go. We are here today with a very special guest. His name is Lester Young. So I came across Lester's story on a YouTube channel called Jubilee, and it was called Do All Killers Think the Same? It had very different perspectives from a few individuals, One girl, I think she was brutally attacked and she had um, ended the life of her attacker. One worked at a hospital and had to pull the plugs on patients. Another, I think, accidentally shot his friend. And um, then there was another one that was in war. And then there was Lester's story, what was very interesting. Um, I believe you were a teenager and got mixed up with, I guess, the wrong things, what? He was involved in, I think it was something like a drug deal that was gone bad. He used his weapon to protect his friend. And then it ended up ending a life. And um, it was a very interesting show because they all had very different um, perspectives on, on everything. On death, on recovery, on redemption. And his story really stuck out to me because if there's any story about redemption, I mean, you need to hear his Um, talk about a person who's really just turned it all the way around on this path of redemption. It led him to create an organization that's called Path to Redemption. We'll get into that after his story. But um, go ahead, Lester, go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Again, I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me um, and inviting me to be a guest on your podcast. Um, My name is Lester Young. Um, I'm a formerly incarcerated person. Someone who served a total of 22 years and five months in the South Carolina Department of Correction. I am recently, I've been home now a total of about nine years. And in that nine years, I've committed myself to my own personal path of redemption, where I started a nonprofit, um, which is called Path of Redemption. Also started up an LLC called Path of Redemption Training and Consultant. I'm a speaker, an author, a community advocate. Uh, who believe that using the lived experiences of those who have been impacted by the criminal legal system, using our stories to change policies, as well as uh, helping people to be able to better identify that individuals uh, who have committed a crime do deserve a second chance and they can live a life of redemption after committing uh, a crime such as myself. I committed a violent crime at 19 years old murder. Um, and most people say that I didn't deserve a second chance. I should die in prison. But I'm so thankful that the God that I serve um, gave me a second chance, touched the hearts of the parole board and granted me a second chance. And I'm now living my life of redemption by inspiring and motivating, educating others about what the challenges are. But most importantly, that redemption is possible.
0: Nice, nice. Now, um, can we talk about how it was for you growing up? Like, how did you get involved in the life of well, um, for lack of better words, a life life of crime. How did you get into that? Well,
1: I always tell people that there's two things that really play a role in shaping a person's paradigm that leads to criminal activity, gang culture, and unfortunately, incarceration or death, right? And I come from a two-parent home, uh, mother, father, uh, hardworking people, Uh, raised me a certain way, and that was the way of not living a life of crime. But as a teenager, just like all of us as teenagers, we're searching for a sense of identity, searching for a sense of belonging. And we look in our, not in our household for that, unfortunately for that identity, we look amongst our friends and our environment, and we hope that that would give us some sense of identity. And being that I was a teenager in the nineties, when the crack era was in place in the early nineties, early 80, 88, 89 in the nineties, crack cocaine, drug dealers, gang banging, music, all of that shaped my paradigm that made that lifestyle appealing to me, Um, especially as a person at a young age who was struggling with with his own sense of self-identity, his sense of self-esteem, sense of self-worth. It was easier to me to gravitate to something that was flashy, something was stylish, and I embraced it for that purpose, but I didn't embrace it for the criminality and the harm that came with it. I just wanted to be a, a part of something like you see in our communities today. A lot of young people want yeah. to be a part of something and not really knowing all of the details and the dark side of the lifestyle that they choose to live.
0: Would you say status was a
1: big part of yeah, it? Yeah, when you think about it, like when, the you, when you're a young person who, who doesn't really like himself or herself, when you look in the mirror, you see so many flaws about you um, and you're doing everything to cover those flaws up. And if that means me being a part of something and gaining some type of street creds where people don't see the flaw, they see the behavior and they glamorize. Unfortunately, they glamorize the destructive behavior, but it, it, it feeds your ego in a way, you know what I'm saying? Because you're already not feeling your own, your own self. You're not comfortable in your own skin. If someone feeds you some false perception of power and status you gravitate to that and it becomes your sense of identity for that period of time.
0: Definitely. So I noticed in the interview you had mentioned um when you were in that life, you didn't really think about other people. I guess you didn't really yeah. care if if, you know, you hurt someone, but did you still have that empathy deep down maybe you just weren't able to show it i was
1: raised by good parents you know um, my actions um because i chose a lifestyle doesn't mean that i was raised by bad parents i i had a father that raised me with a a sense of moral compass but it it got lost in 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 the community in some ways but deep down as you said i knew that what I was doing was completely wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like selling drugs to women that were pregnant or women that had children or selling drugs to men. It was, I knew it was wrong. And, and it's something that I had a conscience about every time, you know what I mean? And, and as unfortunate as it is, mm-hmm. I am so glad that I was able to like find a way out of that because I was dying, you know, and I, and I tell a lot of people this, that we see a lot of people in our community standing on these street corners, engaging in the, in the criminal behavior, Some of these young people are really dying within because they they don't want to be there. But it's just something about just being accepted by your peers as a teenager that makes you want to be in a place that you're really not wanting to be. And that's how I was when I looked at it. You know, I always had that moral compass to know that what I was doing was wrong. And, you know, that's why I think it was easier for me to make that transition or that transformation while I was incarcerated because I now had to go back into how I was raised and I, and that tapped into my moral compass.
0: Would you say that um, the peer pressure from your friends had a lot to do with yeah. everything?
1: <laughs> it's unfortunate. It is. And yeah. many people will listen yeah. to this or, and they'd be like, how's peer pressure? But I think that we all growing up as teenagers who were again, in search of their own identity, their own sense of self-worth, we allowed our peers to influence us in different ways, you know, and, and each of us had that influence, yes. um, that based upon the environment. As I said, I came up in an environment where drug dealing, gangbanging was was the thing for young people. And unfortunately, I gravitated to that, you know. But yeah, we, we are all under some form of, even as an adult, to this day, we sometimes yeah, are very allowing true. Peer, our peers to influence us in different ways, you know. But it's about you gaining a sense of self-control finding your own sense of self-worth and not allowing someone to sway you into doing something as an adult, just, be, just to be accepted in that social status group of people.
0: Yes. So you did a long period of time in prison. Was there a time when you had to shut off your emotions to get in survival mode? Because that <sighs> Is a long time to be away from loved ones. Yeah, I
1: think that you know, entering into the prison, my maybe my first couple of years in prison, I realized that emotion was uh, a sign of weakness in the environment. So I had to like numb myself to be able to survive and to be able to adapt to the environment. Um, so that's why when I tell people about like it took me a few years for me to come to the reconciliation, not the reconciliation, but come to the terms. And accept the responsibility for my crime. You know, um, my first couple of years, I didn't wanted to like even acknowledge the crime that I committed. I didn't wanted to talk about the person I killed. I wasn't really concerned about him or his family. And not saying I'm a cold-hearted person, but it was just that I was in an environment that I could not show any sign of weakness. If I would have showed any emotions of weakness, it would have caused me to be harmed in in, in some severe ways in prison. So I had to learn how to adapt to that environment. But there were nights that while I'm in that cell, in survival mode, there were nights where that vulnerability, I I felt that vulnerability, I felt that emotion, I felt the the sense of guilt, I felt the sense of shame for the crimes that I committed, but I only could show that at night when I'm laying in the bed with the covers over my head crying. And then in the next morning I have to put on this cape to be somebody that I really don't want to be anymore, right? So it took me some time to to find the, the courage and the confidence to break away from all of these isms that I didn't no longer felt that was a part of who I was, my own DNA, my own personality. I found the courage over a couple of years to break away from that. I really didn't care about what my friends thought anymore. I really didn't care about what anyone else think anymore because I realized that, In order for me to transform my life inside of that environment, I had to become more in tune with my own emotions. I had to now stop making decisions for me, not allowing others to make a decision for me anymore. So that's when my path to redemption began. when I started taking control of my life and finding my voice and started speaking up for me.
0: How long did it take you? um How many years did it take you to come to terms and kind of flip that switch where you were like, "How I've been doing this is yeah, all wrong." Like you know, you I started. Say, you know,
1: when I look back, I had I started journaling in 1996. Right, I started doing a lot of journaling, and that's when I was doing a lot of self reflections and and realizing that this was wrong. So I would say it took me. I went to prison in like 1993, it took me about three years. So 1996 is, as I said, when I look at journals that I I still have to this very day, that's when I started seeing the shift. Um, and, and, and so it took me about three and a half, four years where I started, I started fantasizing, not fantasizing, but taking this, making the steps towards transformation and having that mental uh, paradigm shift where I no longer wanted to travel the path of destruction I wanted to now take on some ownership for the crime that I committed. That meaning me acknowledging my crime, acknowledging the emotion, acknowledging the harm that I've done, but also creating a path that I could really take to really bring about transformation in my life.
0: Um, I had heard on the Jubilee episode that you're watching, I think it was Dateline or something. And you saw a mother kind of mourn her child and that kind of sunk in to, you know, what happened and, Was that a pivotal moment also where it kind of um I guess you got that empathy really It
1: really it really you know stuck with me night on a Friday night, I always remember that night. That Friday night watching Dateline and hearing a mother grieve the loss of her son, it, it, it immediately put me into a thought process of understanding the harm that I caused. And then at this time, this is when I've started doing a lot of interpersonal work. I started looking within because I no longer found anything in that environment that could help save me, right? I could no longer be the victim anymore, the blame game. That was, not, that was not saving me. So I needed to look within and that's when I started doing the interpersonal work of healing from my past pain, addressing some of the pain that I had. And it started through journaling. And that Friday night watching that Dateline show, when I heard that, that mother cry and grieving over the loss of her loved one, it immediately put me into the thought process of the harm that I called someone else. And I remember laying down that night in the bed and I couldn't go to sleep. And I got back up within about an hour and I remember finding myself in a fetus position in that dark cell on that cold concrete floor in a fetus position, crying yeah. and asking God to forgive me. Then I remember God said, I have forgiven you. You have to seek forgiveness from the person you have harmed. And that was the first time that I uttered the name of the person in which I killed. I, I found for the first time, I mentioned his name and I asked him to forgive me. And I remember making a promise that with, your, with, with this strong. forgiveness that I asked you, I, I promise you that I will live my life in a way that will honor you. I will not sell drugs. I will not use drugs. I will not drink alcohol. I will not engage in the activities that unfortunately caused your life to be lost and me to be sitting in prison. I made that vow that night talking to that person's spirit. And from that night, that's when my life really just, I I really dug into the purpose and understood that there was a higher purpose. There was something greater behind this. And that's when I started doing more of the work to becoming a better person, but also using my story and the story of my victim, using both of our stories to help transform the lives of other people inside of the prison. Um, And that's when I started doing the stuff that I started, well, started teaching classes and being mentors uh, for other young people inside of the prison to help them break out of that stage of self-denial and to acknowledge the harm that they've caused to other people.
0: Interesting. So, what what is your opinion on the prison system? Do you think it is built to punish and rehabilitate, or is it like I'm just curious um, because I hear a lot of different opinions uh, that's on this. A
1: great question. You know, um, as someone who served 22 years in prison. And a lot of my um, my education and transformation did not come as a result from the prison administration. It came from me making an investment in me, right? Um, we, see, we see today the prison system, you know, in the early 90s, it was all about tough on crime, punish them, punish them, punish them, punish them, no rehabilitation. But I would say over the last couple of years now, you've been seeing a shift in mind, in the mind of, of elected officials and community where this is no punishment no longer works. Punishing people, giving them long prison sentences is not making our community safer. So now, it's, right now damage. it's focusing more on that rehabilitation process, rehabilitation. And I still believe a lot of the prisons have a lot of work to do in this rehabilitation um, and, 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 and being able to use prison as, as a stepping stone to helping people become better by giving them, as I said, dehumanizing them, stripping them their human dignity because of a crime. It doesn't transform behavior. What transforms behavior is that you see these people as human beings. They're people who made a mistake. And we start addressing the human need of the people versus the punishing of the people for the crimes that was their committed.
0: Nice. So I was reading a little bit of mm-hmm. statistics and it says out of over 2 million inmates, the U S releases 600,000 prisoners annually. And 71% end up back in prison. And usually it's within five years. That's a critical
1: period. I always tell people that the first 90 days to the first 180 days of a person release is the most critical time of their release. So this is the, this leads into the reason why I do the work that I do now when I go into the prisons. Because me walking out of prison after 22 years, I didn't go through a rehabilitation program. I didn't go through any of these things. I I was blessed to have family members who would invest in me by sending me money so I can buy books. you see some of these books behind me, these are some of the books that I read while I was in prison. I read hundreds of books in prison because I realized that the only way that I'm gonna be able to transform the man that the person that I once was in becoming a better person, it started with education. It started with reading a book. I heard someone mention this. It says that if you give a person the keys to the library, you give them the key to their future you give them a key out of poverty. If you have just an ID to a library, you have a key that can actually take you out of poverty and crime and that's a very true statement because by me, when I started making that investment and in educating myself, it gave me the passport to a brighter future. You know what I'm saying? I was no longer Lester Young, the 19 year old wayward kid who was struggling with all of these different things by reading books on self, um, on, on trauma, reading books on, on healing, reading books on forgiveness and learning these different techniques. It allowed me to heal from my brokenness. It allowed me to find my voice. It allowed allowed me to get clearer on a purpose that I had on my life. God helped me to get clarity on my gift. So I think that when prisons focus on those particular components, I believe that we can no longer worry about the recidivism rate being so high because these individuals inside of the prison now have converted their prison cells into colleges. Education is the passport to rehabilitating people, not tough on crime, not the three right laws. None of these things change people and reduce recidivism. What changes recidivism and reduce it is education, personal development, financial literacy, entrepreneurship, healing from trauma, all of these things help change people become better fathers and mothers and citizens and back in our community.
0: So I have mm-hmm. another question. Do you think everyone is deserving of rehabilitation? I know that's, that's a very I, I broad believe, question. I believe
1: that every human being is capable of redemption. I believe every human being. I believe that there's various various techniques in, in, in helping address. Some people have a severe level of trauma uh, and, and, and and mental health issues. And I believe that we can't use one stroke of the brush for everyone. I believe that once we... Once Amen. we once we identify the level of mental health issues and and trauma of a person, we have to now create that unique uh uh that unique curriculum and education and therapy to,
0: specific to that for that person. Them.
1: But we're living in a society yeah. where we believe that one shoe fits everyone. So many people say, "Well, it's not working." The reason why it's not working is because we're not doing our due diligence and and addressing individuals and and providing them with a treatment that fits their unique need versus saying it should fit everyone. And I think that, yeah, everyone is capable of it, but we have to really be more intentional about how we address the needs of these individuals who have severe mental health issues, who have created a large, Mm -hmm. a lot of harm. I believe everyone's redeemable. It's just a matter of how we approach it.
0: And if they want it.
1: I think you know when you sit in a cell long enough and you you in that place of darkness. I always tell people that you cool until the wall starts talking to you. You know when you're in isolation inside yeah. of a prison for periods of time, months and years, the wall starts talking to you, and you start hearing, you start realizing that yo, this I can't, this can't be life, and you realize that there's nothing in that environment that can give you peace other than you finding peace within you, right? And 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 that's something that we have to help people walk through, you know what I mean? Um, and in prison and even in our society, everyone has a desire to want to change. It's just a matter? Do we have the patience to work with this individual? Do we have the patience to walk with them? Do we have the patience to help diagnose them? I mean, help them to be able to understand. Yeah.
0: What Do on? they have the yeah.
1: support? Give them the yeah. support. And you'll be amazed at what individuals are capable of doing inside of that environment, even in our community, when we are intentional about the support that we offer.
0: So when you got out, when you were finally released into, you know, regular civilian life, how did you, what was the key to adjusting? I know you said you had some loved ones, but what was the key? Because that is a huge adjustment to come out.
1: I mean, you know, of course, having family support, community support from my mentors, but the huge, the huge adjustment was me before I walked out of prison. See, see, a lot of people believe that you, you, uh, when you walk out of prison, that's when your day starts. Rehabilitation reentry start. For me, as I mentioned to you, I read th- hundreds of books in prison, so I was already mentally mm-hmm. w- prepared to make the adjustments and adapt to the culture of the society. I was mentally prepared, even okay. though I may have lacked certain skill sets. You know what I mean, but psychologically and emotionally, mentally, I was already prepared. My mindset was there. So, you know, and, and this is what we have to do is that we have to help individuals redevelop their mindset so that when they walk out, they face rejection, they face disappointment, they deal with the culture shocks. They deal with all of these things that come with reentry. The one thing that is going to help them to survive all of the challenges is that they have a, 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 a mental fortitude to help them to endure.
0: What else was a key to helping you adjust?
1: Uh, Just uh, as I mentioned, family, of course, and and having those mentors um, to meet regularly with, to meet with me, to just keep checking with me emotionally. Because walking out of prison, you're going to deal with a level of anxiety, depression. You know, you're going to deal with a lot of different things. And just to have someone to just check in on you to make sure that you're emotionally well. Um, and, and, and walk you through this journey. You know, cause like I said, I've been in, in mentally prepared. I felt like I was capable to be resilient through whatever the challenges may be, but it's always good to have a mentor um, to sit down and talk to on a consistent basis just to do that, that check-in. So that's why I tell a lot of individuals in their transition, make sure that you have a strong community of people around you, um, particularly those who may have walked their shoes before you, walk that journey, have been in prison, have been out of prison for a period of years and been successful, those are the ones I think that you should really connect with because they can help you to identify um, what it is that you need to do and be able to speak a little more um, realness to you um, related to the challenges that you may be facing. That your family member who had never been in prison, never struggled with a job, never struggled with criminal behavior, um, they may not be able to help you in that capacity or even be able to pinpoint some areas where you need to start up working on so that you don't have a relapse.
0: Great advice. So also I wanted to ask, I know before we mentioned how you kind of had to turn off your emotions to be in survival mode. Um, as time went on, did you learn to just um, kind of not, well, I wouldn't say not care what people think. I know you mentioned you kind of got to a point where you were a healing place, I guess. When you were released, did you find yourself still struggling with that to be vulnerable?
1: Uh, Not really, because as I said, um, I I had to learn, learn how to be emotionally connected to people inside of prison. So one of the things that I started doing, I started working with people in hospice. I started doing a lot of hospice work in prison. And that allowed me to at the time i wasn't aware of it but it actually allowed me to start connecting with a deeper level of empathy in my emotions so that i can be able to process you know what i mean and and that allowed me to become that a a person and having conversations with my family having conversations with the prison chaplains it allowed me not to walk out of prison emotionally hollow you know um i had emotions i was connected to the emotions i understood Uh, What my emotional IQ was and what I needed to do again to be able to be connect to human beings in the most authentic way and be intentional about that. It's not really a healthy thing for a person when they do in time in prison that they stay in survival mode because survival mode, it actually damages you more, right? And an emotional level because now when you walk out of prison, you're unable to make a natural human connection with people. You know, you you, you you become just a hollow person um, and you just learn how to bury your emotions. And that's not the, that's not a healthy thing. If you're a father, you're a husband, you have a partner, you have children, you have to be able to have some level of emotions to connect with people. And that's a hard thing. That's why, again, I say is prison have to really focus on the rehabilitation versus the punishment. Because when you're in that punishment phase, people are in survival mode. When you're in that rehabilitation phase, you're about the healing process. So you're not only healing from the trauma of incarceration, you're healing from your childhood trauma. You're healing from a lot of traumas that actually shape you. You now have an opportunity to peel back, peel back those different forms of trauma, begin to heal from them, so that it can empower you to be a whole, be a whole person when you walk out of prison, versus being some person in the physical shell. But emotionally, mentally, you're not even there anymore for the people that really love you.
0: Yeah, that's really, that's very true. So I know you had mentioned um, on the YouTube that I was talking about, the YouTube channel, you had mentioned that you went into prison with like a seventh grade education. And now you're authoring books. Can you talk about your books?
1: Yes, um, like I did. I went to prison. I was 19 years old, uh, tested as reading at, re- re- reading at maybe a seventh grade level of education. And, as that, and that really came as a result of me not taking school seriously, didn't really see the value in education at that time, um, going to school. Uh, you know, but when I got into prison, I had guys who were already in prison who were long term offenders, who were serving natural life sentences. They, they saw that the only way uh, for me to becoming a better person, my passport to my freedom was through books. And I had friends that literally would not let me walk out of my prison cell until I read certain pages out of the book and tell them that, right, and be able to give them that. And I had those individuals that really cared about my well-being. So when I started reading books, it, it opened up an entire different world to me. So I was able to get my GED while I was in prison. I was able to get a two year degree in business while I was in prison. And then from there, I started journaling. And then I realized that what I was journaling, I had so many thoughts and ideas about how I needed to help me find my redemption. I turned it into a curriculum inside of the prisons. So I started to book my first book called Five Stages of Incarceration, And it's really helping individuals identify the areas of self-denial, addressing the anger issues, removing themselves from the victimization mindset, but most importantly, moving to an area of forgiveness and transformation. That was my entire couple of years in prison in a journal. So I started using the notes from my journal to start teaching classes inside of the prison. So I taught this book called The Five Stages of Incarceration. almost like 15, 16 years in prison before I walked out of prison. So when I walked out of prison, people were still asking about those classes. So I was like, oh man, I forgot. So That's when I was inspired to just take all of my notes and put it into a book that now it's like I call it my letters to the men and women in prison is like my farewell letter to you. Here's a here's this letter, a book that I believe that transformed my life and put me in a position to win during and after my incarceration. This book, The Five-Stage of incarceration, is my letter to the men and women in prison, helping them discover what their five-stage of incarceration is. But also pushing them to that level of transformation, and that's really making that personal investment in becoming a better person. So you can go into prison reading at a seventh grade level education, but you can walk out of prison as an author, an entrepreneur, a person that is completely different through the pages of a book.
0: Nice, That's amazing. And also, I know your um, your nonprofit path to redemption. You offer assistance to those formerly incarcerated, at-risk youth. Um, you also help out the homeless community, and um, you do pardon clinics. Can you speak a little about that?
1: All of those, everything that I do in my organization from helping out the youth, I have a youth program where we go into the Department of Juvenile Justice, and we do mentoring and coaching young people into living a more productive life after their release released from prison. And I, and I tailor it based upon my lived experience. I went to prison at a young age, and I always said, I wish I had someone like the older version of me to teach me, teach the younger version of me. So that's where my program, when I work with young people inside of the juvenile facility, as well as in the community, we also do workforce development, where we help individuals get faultless certifications, because we realize that working out of prison, you need something to get started. And I got started with my my first job out of prison because I got a forklift certification. So what I did, I started now training other individuals on how to get the certification, connect with organizations and businesses here in the in South Carolina, um, in Columbia, South Carolina, connected with these businesses, say, hey, if I get these men trained, will you hire them? And most of the companies say, yes, we will hire them. So that's another one of those things that I do. And I received my full pardon in 2020. Um, by the state of South Carolina, I have a full pardon and because the pardon process and what the pardon process wasn't extremely complicated as a lot of people thought it think that it is here in South Carolina. So once I received my pardon, I started um, raising money to help other individuals get pardoned. So we have then done like maybe about 10 pardon clinics. I I quickly realized that there was a lot of men and women who were being denied jobs and housing as a result of their criminal background. So I felt like the only way that we can actually help individuals move forward in the workforce and and, and get housing, become homeowners, uh, that will be able to put their families up in a safe place to stay, and that's helping them uh, get pardons. So I started raising money uh, here in Columbia, South Carolina, and helping pay for individuals' pardons. So, we have then hosted about maybe 15 pardon clinics, and we have then helped over 100 people apply for pardons. And these individuals, I think right now we are at 26 people who have received full pardon by the state of South Carolina as a result of our efforts. And these numbers are still coming in um, because it takes about a year after you submit the application. So, we're excited to see that we're now not only helping individuals find employment but we're also helping individuals clean their criminal background up so that they can be able to move, have more more mobility in the community as far as employment and also housing situations.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Do you plan to branch out with your organization to other states?
1: As of right now, maybe in another few years um, because I'm really just focusing on really tailoring this here and really working out the kinks. As I said, I have also an LLC. I do training and consulting for correction environments. So I'm just looking at really just building these two programs out that would help transform the, the staff that works inside of the prison, but as well as helping men and women go in constant, help them transform so they can walk out in the community and be more productive. So maybe in another couple of years, we'll see what that looks like.
0: Awesome, and also before we close out, um, where can people find you and also what's your website?
1: Yes. And, you know, I'm on, uh, uh, what's that? Uh, Instagram path, the number two, five, one path, path redemption, five, one, five on Instagram, on Facebook, Lester Young on my, you can just go to my website called path the number two redemption.org. And you can find me there. You can communicate with me there. Uh, send me a message, call, let me know and see how, there, if there's any way I can help you.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And also I will, I will have the link to his website, um, uh, wherever my podcast is being channeled at, I would have, I will have his handle as well. So you can go follow
1: him. I appreciate you.
0: Thank you so much for your patience.
1: (laughs) I appreciate you for inviting me. Thank you.